Welcome to a podcast about wealth and life with the advisors from Foster and Motley. In this podcast, they share their mission to help individuals, couples, and families achieve the life they envision by providing a comprehensive wealth management experience. Join this seasoned team of experts as they explore actionable steps to improve your financial well-being and answer your most pressing questions. Benjamin Franklin is credited with the statement, our new constitution is now established. Everything seems to promise it will be durable, but in this world, nothing is certain except death and taxes. Well, on that positive, uplifting note, this is Foster and Motley's podcast about life and wealth, and this episode is all about something that old Ben would approve of, tax planning. I'm Patrice Sikora, and with me are Tony Lockhart, financial planner, and Ryan English, investment manager, both at Foster and Motley. All right, guys, I don't know who's going to go first here. Tony, I think you raised your hand, but we know we have to pay taxes. So what is tax planning? Well, Patrice, thanks for having us back here first off. It feels like uh, not too long since we've uh, <laughs> spoken last, so it's great to be back. Taxes are a certainty, and you know, in preparing for this podcast, I've looked up what what does tax planning mean? And one definition I found was the analysis of one's financial situation to minimize taxes over the course of a lifetime to maximize wealth. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a mouthful. What does it yeah. mean? I mean, if we break it down, it means we're going to analyze one a person's situation and we're going to look to minimize taxes over a lifetime to maximize okay. wealth. Okay. That's right. Well, you know, none of us are going to evade taxes. You know, they're going to be owed one way or the other, but with some proper planning and looking at your overall situation, there are some things that we can do to, to help minimize that tax burden. The one thing that we don't want to do is to necessarily let the tax tail wag the investment dog, or you don't want to change your lifestyle in major ways to you know, avoid taxes necessarily. So, you know, there's some there's some complicated and there's some th- simple things you can do to avoid taxes. And most of what we're going to talk about a lot today. Taxes are the golden thread that runs through every piece of our puzzle, our financial puzzle. And, you know, it affects anything from your earned income. It affects your retirement accounts. It affects your investments for sure. And can even affect your estate if you're lucky enough to, as the current uh, tax law states, if you're over $23.4 million as a couple, uh, you have some potential estate tax issues as well. I'm not worried. I'm not worried. (laughs) Very few are uh, at, at, at these levels for certain. Okay, Ryan, your turn. Yeah, and tax planning is one of the things about Foster Motley's wealth management approach in that we establish you know, through the financial planning process as well, capital gains budgets for each client for each year. And this, you know, is largely done to keep clients in certain tax brackets uh, and minimize their, their taxes. And we still want an appropriate budget that allows us to rebalance the portfolio and get the allocation in line with what we believe is most optimal. But now, wait a minute. You said a budget here. Usually, budgets are for spending. What is a capital gains budget? Well, a capital gains budget is how much in total, in terms of a dollar amount of capital gains we would realize for a client a given year in their taxable investment accounts. And ultimately, what 
we realize they will pay tax on. So we are targeting a particular amount of gain uh, to flow through the tax return. So we know exactly what their picture will look like uh, come year end and the following April when they have to make that tax payment check. And how do you how do you do this though? How do we do this? We do this. <laughs> well, we do this through our tax planning process. We have software on the financial planning side uh, called BNA, where we input a client's picture and, and work with different scenarios in terms of their overall gains. And then that's communicated and, and collaborated with the investment team. And we you know, also have uh, an application that allows us to establish what that particular budget will be when we're trading a client's account. Is this year by year or is it a chunk of years? Is it how, what kind of a time frame are you looking at? So, you know, one of the ways is soaking up low tax brackets. So, for instance, if you have a year in which you have some cash on hand that you don't rely on the portfolio for distributions, or you go through the year and you realize at the end of the year through some active kind of tax planning that there is some room within a tax bracket that you could realize some additional income, you know, that would be a way to do that. So for instance, you know, let's say that you get to the end of the year and you realize that you're still in the 12% tax bracket or you get some room in that 12% tax bracket. And that may, oh, well, 12% tax bracket, that's not a lot of income. Well, actually, it's about $81,000 of taxable income married and filing jointly. And with a standard deduction, that means you could have up to $106,000 of income realized in that year and still be in the 12% tax bracket. You know, so you get to the end of the year and you realize, hey, I've got I've got another $25,000 of additional room in that tax bracket that I could realize, you know, gains or realize income by uh, taking an IRA distribution. So that's that's meaningful mm-hmm. as opposed to some point down the road in which you could be in a much higher tax bracket. So there's a tax arbitrage opportunity. All right. The other way is kind of capital gains recognition. Same situation, you know, where we're in the the twelve percent tax bracket potentially, or a different tax bracket. Capital gains can be taxed at zero percent up to the twelve percent tax bracket. So again, about one hundred and six thousand dollars of income, including the standard deduction, they can be taxed at zero percent. They can be taxed at fifteen percent above that amount and 20%. So, you know, there's some opportunities to do some active tax planning to look at that look at that year's tax situation and decide do I purposely decide to recognize income, which is weird because most people oh, I want to defer income. Mm. Well, there may be some good reasons to purposely recognize that income. All right, that makes some sense. You're going to fill up what you can. But what's this net investment income tax threshold? That's a long title. What is it? Patrice, that is another consideration in a capital gains budget and how much in capital gains to realize for a given year. So if if a married couple has over $250,000 in adjusted gross income, they will incur an additional 3.8% tax on their capital gains. So that is a number that is considered in terms of staying under uh, when you're looking at tax planning. All right. Now I see Irma here and Medicare planning. Now I know that varies because it's over a two-year period each time, right? They go back and they look at your income. Tell me about that and how it impacts Medicare. Yeah, that's a great point. So it is two years in arrears. So for 2021, for instance, 
they look at your income in 2019 to determine what you're going to pay in Medicare premiums. And if you're over certain limits, then you have to pay additional Medicare premiums. So for instance, I had one client that uh, was a new client to us. A couple of years went by before we were working with them. We took a look at his tax return and he was like $50 over this limit. <laughs> and by being over that limit, it cost him and his, his spouse about $1,700 in additional Medicare premiums. So that's real money. you know. So some proactive tax planning where we could have if we were working with him at the time, we could have said, hey, let's stop your IRA distribution in December, right? And then let's, if you get, we'll just wait till January and take it out in January the 1st. And that would have saved them $1,700 in taxes. So simple things like that, just knowing their tax situation. And that's one of the things we do in current year tax planning is we update your tax projection towards the end of the year and see if there are different opportunities that we can take, take advantage of um, deferring or accelerating income. I feel sorry for that guy. 50 bucks and it cost him 1700 That definitely is something you need to be planning about. All right. That, that's year by year we've been talking, current year. What about the multi-year planning? Yeah. So I think that's a perfect example of some of that multi-year planning. And one of the things that we do on the planning side is we have a multiple-year cash flow projection. So we know what your needs are going to be over you know the next five years or more. So by doing that, we can look at, we can look, uh, you know, in the, in the uh, look ahead we can look over the horizon and say, hey, are there different opportunities here that we could recognize additional income? So a little bit what we were talking about before, let's say that, let's say you've got a big IRA account. And when you hit age 72, you're going to have to start taking required minimum distributions mm -hmm. out, required amounts out of your IRA. And we can look at and say, hey, you know, in, in that year and going forward, you're going to be in a 32% tax bracket, for instance, right? But now, maybe you're in the 12% tax bracket. So we could potentially recognize some additional IRA income to soak up tax brackets up to some level that you're comfortable in paying taxes. You know, So you could recognize income up to the 22% tax bracket as opposed to paying it in the future at 30, 32%. So that's a 10% tax difference, which you know, on $100,000, that's some significant amount of money. How about this bunching? Yeah, and that has to do with charitable gifting. If you have plans to donate money to charity, uh, the way tax laws exist now is potentially you should bunch your gifts if they are going to be, when grouped together, a number larger than the standard deduction. So the standard deduction for a married couple is about $25,000. If you are going to stay under that number with your charitable gifts in a given year, you might want to consider making more donations in one given year and skipping donations in year two or three or four. Uh, so that's the concept of bunching. So you get credit for your on your tax return for, for the charitable gifts versus the standard deduction. And if you're giving away money to charity, the best thing to give is appreciated stock. So if you give long-term stock holdings that have, have gains, you do not have to pay tax on that gain when you give it to charity and you get full credit for its current market value. So that is how you kind of get the most bang for your buck in donating stock to, um, to charities. Ryan, give us an example of that. So if, you have, if you've owned you know, Microsoft stock for some time, you, know, you bought it in 2010 or even earlier, you, you have a very, very large gain. You know, and say you paid $50,000 for it and it's worth you know, 175,000. Well, if you were to give 
that stock, $175,000, you would not have to pay tax or capital gains tax on the $125,000 in appreciation. But yet you would get full credit on your tax return for donating the $175,000. So that's the advantage of donating appreciated stock. And I'm sure the charity appreciates it too. They don't have to worry about it. Exactly. And there's other things that we can look at as far as uh, charitable gifting type of things. We did a, a podcast, which we could probably include in the, the show notes mm-hmm. about different things like using your IRA uh, distributions when you're over age 70 and a half to give to charity as a difference than itemizing your deductions. If you're not going to do that, then if you're going to get the standard deduction, it oftentimes you're not going to get a tax credit for it. So you can do it directly from your IRA and not pay any taxes. So there's some big advantages there that we detail more in our charitable giving uh, podcast. And you're right. We will make the note on the show notes so we can reference back to that episode. It was a good one. How about business sales? Yeah. So business sales, there's different strategies to look at. We won't get deep in, deep into that at, at this podcast, but you know, one of the, the basic things to look at is, you know, do you do, uh, if you sell your business, you oftentimes have the opportunity to do it as a lump sum and recognize the gains all in one year. Or you could potentially take a ten-year payout and recognize those gains, you know, per rata over ten years, you know, and that may be a situation where, hey, if you're living in Ohio and you plan to move to Florida, well, maybe recognizing those gains over a ten-year period makes some sense, as opposed to, you know, it, there's talk about potential tax law changes that are uh, our Congress is talking about currently, and, and will be probably into the fall. You know, if you're in a situation where you're in a high enough tax bracket and we've got tax law changes where those taxes may increase, perhaps you decide to recognize those gains, you know, this year at a potentially lower rate than, you know, future years, depending upon what those changes are. So there's different things to think about and think through from that perspective. And that doesn't just apply to business sales too. I mean, there's deferred retirement plans that um, allow for those options to take them in a lump sum or a five or a 10 year payout. So you know, it's not just, it doesn't just apply to business owners. Excellent point. The investment philosophy at Foster and Motley. Ryan, talk to me about that and how that helps with being very aware of the taxes. So the investment philosophy at Foster and Motley is to primarily use individual securities. And then asset location comes into play, which securities don't and which accounts. I mean, typically an individual client just doesn't have one account. They have a taxable account. They have an IRA or they have a Roth IRA or any combination of those. So we like to own the individual stocks in the taxable accounts, and we can better control for the capital gains. Unlike a mutual fund who come December, they're passing out their capital gains and they're very unpredictable on what they may be. That makes tax planning more difficult. But with individual stock, we can control when they're bought and when they're sold. And this gives us the ability to you know, do tax loss harvesting throughout the year as well. Uh, if you know railroads are down and UNP stock declines, it's likely that um, a corresponding railroad like CSX, their stock also declined. And if we can get the same amount of value, we can realize the loss in um, the UNP stock that we sold and still have an economic interest in railroads by buying the CSX stock. So that's an example of how we can kind of control the capital gains in client portfolios. And that that's really how we're able to be on target with our capital gains budgets for clients. So we also one additional point on that. Like you know, if we get to the end of the year and you know perhaps the portfolio is overrated and overweighted in different areas that we want to realize some gains, but we look at the tax planning piece and say, well, we really don't want to, any more gains in this year. 
Well, it's easy enough just to say, hey, let's push the pause button in December. Let's realize those gains in January. And it's a whole different whole different ball game and potentially a whole different uh, tax bracket that those gains could be taxable at. Yeah. I mean, capital gains budgets can be dynamic in a sense. They are evaluated throughout the year for clients. I mean, this year is a very important year to evaluate them too, with the potential for capital gains rates increasing. I mean, that's on every everyone's minds at this point. But we also own individual bonds and we purchase taxable bonds and accounts like at IRAs that are tax deferred. And we purchase, you know, typically tax exempt bonds and taxable accounts where, you know, we're focusing on what what is the after tax income payment to clients. And this this asset location aspect, uh, when you think about it, I mean the tax deferred accounts like an IRA to own taxable bonds, I mean they you know, they are eventually going to be taxed as ordinary income when um, when those withdrawals are made, whether they're RMDs or you know distributions for for a client's needs in uh, in retirement. You you both mentioned different tax rates. You also kind of mentioned tax free investments. Talk to me about that. Yeah, so there's different types of of investments that, that recognize that have different types of income characteristics. So, you know, money you earn from a job, your W-2, a business, self-employment, those are all taxed at at ordinary income rates. Um, And those tax brackets can range anywhere from 0% all the way up to 37% based upon current tax law. So, Income from certain investments are also taxed at ordinary income rates. So, for instance, bond interest and most international stocks are taxed at ordinary income rates. Um, So, for instance, in those types of situations and what uh, Ryan was talking about before, you know, perhaps we hold those bonds in an IRA account where you don't pay taxes on them until you take the money out. And we hold stocks, which are taxed at more favorable capital gains rates, you know, 0, 15, 20, as opposed to as high as 37%. We hold individual stocks or stocks in a taxable account. Again, you're going to pay taxes on the, the the dividends that are recognized in the year, but the capital gains component is very controllable through tax planning and deciding you know what to sell and when. So there is some definitely some advantages of recognizing that there are different types of investments that carry different characteristics. There's also municipal bonds. Uh, those are bonds that are uh, are issued by government agencies uh, to raise to raise capital. And those are those are typically uh, not subject to federal tax. And depending upon what state you're in and the municipal bond may not be subject to uh, state taxes either. So there are certainly some advantages in understanding a person's tax situation. If you're in a high tax situation, then perhaps we own some municipal bonds uh, in your taxable account as opposed to uh, as taxable bonds. Now, where you're located, you... I'm thinking would be dealing with people from various states. You've got your Kentucky, you've got your Ohio, maybe Indiana. What about the state rates? You just mentioned that. And how do they differ? Yes. So the state rates are actually fairly similar between Ohio, Kentucky, and Indiana. And they're not, when purchasing tax exempt bonds per se, I mean, the biggest consideration that is that you're not having to pay federal income tax. Uh, the states, the, the states don't. I mean, you're, if you buy an Ohio bond and you live in Ohio, you're gonna you're you're going to not have to pay the Ohio state income tax probably on that particular income component of it. But it's not as big of a factor as the federal. And then, of course, you have states that don't have state income tax, like Florida. We got 
clients in Florida and you know and you don't you don't take into consideration um, the that aspect of tax exempt bonds it's still purely the federal all right let's talk about capital gains I mean that's that comes up a lot and people I don't think understand it in capital gains I mean the way our tax code is currently written capital gains are very favorable in terms of their rates uh, so I mean if if you make a certain amount of income you can actually pay no capital gains tax or you know, the next two brackets are 15 and 20%, which most people fall into. Uh, that compares with the highest ordinary tax rate, which is around 37%. So the tax, the taxability of, of stocks in terms of realizing capital gains is, is the most favorable in our tax code. And, and the other reason that we currently prefer to own them in taxable accounts as well. Tony? I think Ryan nailed it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Then talk to me about asset location. We've gone over this before, but I think it's a very important uh, point to make here. Yeah, we covered this a little bit before, but I think one of the things not mentioned for asset location was Roth IRAs. So Roth IRAs are the best investment account type that you can have. They're also the most difficult to get a lot of money into because there's (laughs) restrictions on how much you can contribute to them. So they are tax-free. You never will pay any tax on them on any of their growth. Uh, the money that's that goes in there is actually already taxed. So we like to own you know, whatever can has the most appreciation potential in Roth IRAs, and which that's typically stocks as well. Uh, so over a client's lifetime, all of that appreciation will be tax-free, and it's a it's a great asset if um if desired to be passed down to uh, children. All right. The- I'm sure you are busiest when it comes to tax time. I mean, the April deadlines that we all face, well, they've been April traditionally. Uh, <laughs> but how do we avoid surprises? Yeah, I think that's where, where tax planning comes back into to focus. You know, our goal is to avoid surprises. So through that active communication with the CPA, through that active communication with the um, with the client, that allows us to do proactive tax planning, allows us to get a better handle on the client's situation oftentimes and really help minimize those surprises. So, you know, that communication works throughout the year. You know, we are number one and when we get a copy of the tax return, we're taking a look at that tax return to make sure it jives with what we were anticipating. I don't know if you're like most folks, Patrice, but so if you're looking at your your tax return and you sign it and you don't really know what it's supposed to look like or whether you just kind of signed it and go on your merry way because taxes are done, right? Where we have a, an active tax projection that we refer to and say, does that match with what we were anticipating? And if not, we take a look at it a little deeper and decide why it doesn't. Then we communicate with the client and the CPA to sometimes there's mistakes, sometimes there's something missed. You know, sometimes it's just lack of information. So, you know, there is a lot of things that go in that way. The other thing that we look at is, and I mentioned this a little bit just a second ago, we by having that active tax projection throughout the year, we look at estimated payments. You know, what are the best ways to make sure that you're making estimated payments? There's you can do quarterly payments. You can do IRA distributions. You know, lots of clients. One of the things we do that are clients that are taking IRA distributions, make an estimated payments is a pain in the butt. You know, what you can do is just have taxes withheld from your IRA account and sent to the Fed and in the state, and it's easy. You don't have to worry about making those quarterly payments. And one of the nice things about that is that with quarterly estimated payments as the name is, you have to pay them quarterly. Well, with IRAs, they look at it 
as if it's pro rata paid throughout the year. So you can do an IRA distribution in December and have the right amount withheld for federal taxes and state taxes. And they look at that as if you made a pro rata payment throughout the entire year. So you won't know a penalty for underpainting throughout the year. And by the end of the year, we have a pretty a much better handle on your tax situation. So we can narrow in on what your tax liability is. So you don't have more money sitting in government coffers than you know potentially uh, that needed to be paid out. Which brings me to the question of large refunds. Usually people jump up and down when they realize they're getting a large refund. How do you feel about that? Well, it's certainly, it does feel good to get a refund. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> as opposed to owe money, I guess, if there's a, it's the, you'd rather, uh, you'd rather get a refund, but it is your money if you're getting a refund. It's money that you've overpaid throughout the year and you've given the government an interest-free loan. So the idea is to, is to really be accurate with, um, how much in taxes you're going to pay throughout the year and, and have that use of that money um, throughout the year as well. I mean, in theory, the best situation, and it feels the, the worst and the weirdest, is that if you could owe taxes come April, that would be the, that would be the best thing, right? If you knew that you owed them and that you knew that you had that money sitting in the sidelines working and growing for you throughout the year. So, you know, that's a, but you never want, you never want a big refund, even though it feels good because the as Ryan said, Uncle Sam's got an interest-free loan where they're using your money and you're not. So you know, it, it the, the goal is to probably be close um, on your liability and not owe a lot, not getting a lot back. But you know, it, it's funny how we think, oh, we got a big refund. Yeah. This is great. Well, that's your job. Yeah. Your job is to make me come in like this. You know, really close. It's really supposed close. to come in. Yeah, right. You both mentioned Florida. So why don't people move to Florida? Or they are moving to Florida in some cases. Should I? They definitely are moving to Florida. Uh, from a tax standpoint, it it really depends on you know which state you're moving from, and what the income tax rate is in that state. Certainly, states like California uh, moving to Florida looks you know a lot better than you know moving from Ohio, which has a lower state income tax rate than California. So, you know, we do run the numbers and evaluate the tax impact or the tax benefit um, with moving. You know, not just to Florida, but there are other states that don't have state income taxes as well. You know, but typically that's not, it's not the primary reason that uh, that you should move uh, to avoid state income taxes. I mean, there are other considerations in terms of, uh, you know, benefits and, and quality of life that, uh, you know, maybe, maybe there's family members there, maybe there's not, uh, that should be considered as well. We have some clients that are on the fence. They're thinking about, well, I want to, I want to move. I want to move. I don't know where. I want to, I'm between these two and three states that I'm that are in my my thought process, you know. And by understanding some of the tax implications, that's at least an additional data point. As Ryan said, it shouldn't be a, a decision, but we can run the numbers, give you the data point. And you know, some states they exempt re- retirement income from taxes, um, you know, a lot more favorable than other states. So there's different, definitely different uh, different dynamics to look at for state by state. And taxes can change. Taxes are always changing. You're always uh, changing. <laughs> Washington's debating uh, tax policy uh, this this year, probably in the fall. There's probably going to be some conversation around that. And you know, one of the things that we do as far as tax planning is we're keeping our eye on the ball. You know, we're we're keeping an eye on what the conversations are. We're keeping an eye on what the tax law changes actually end up being, and then we're proactive um, from the standpoint of number one, looking at what those possibilities may be, and then once they 
are in law. You know, we reach out, we take a look at our client's tax situation to say, you know, are there things that we should be doing that we're not or vice versa? So, you know, there's uh, certainly staying on top of that, not being reactive, being proactive, understanding what those tax law changes are and when they happen and and reaching out and having conversations around those. And that gives you know people confidence to live the best life that they want to live and know that we that we're looking at all those things. I don't have to read the Wall Street Journal or, you know, whatever it may be all the time to to figure all those things out where we're doing that. Well, taxes are not simple. And as you mentioned, things change. So how can people reach you if they've got questions? Patrice, the best way for people to reach us is to visit our website at www.fosterandmotley.com. We've got a lot of content. We have a lot of content about taxes on there that uh, they can read and and learn a lot about us. And Sounds good. Sounds good. All right, Tony and Ryan, a great discussion. I have to admit, taxes make my head explode. It turns out we may not have much control over death and taxes. Well, that's another thing. You guys have some control over that for us. And as I remind listeners every episode, get on board, subscribe or follow Foster and Motley's podcast about life and wealth. Share it with others and give us your comments. I'm Patrice Sikora, and let's talk again later. Thank you for listening to Foster and Motley, a podcast about wealth and life. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information discussed and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Foster and Motley. The content, including mention of specific investments or planning techniques, is for informational and for educational purposes only. It is not intended as a recommendation or a substitute for professional financial advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions regarding your financial planning and investments. Foster & Motley is not affiliated with any third-party providers. Any mention of a third-party provider does not imply an endorsement of that provider. If you decide to utilize a third-party provider, you do so at your own risk.